As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. If you have a bulletin with you, you can find the sermon text in your bulletin. If If you were here last week, you'll remember we looked at Isaiah 6, famous passage. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And then God says, okay, go. The people will not listen to you by and large. And at least one person has pointed out that you may get an immediate example of that in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, we'll read the whole chapter without further ado. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz, the heart of his people, shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful. Be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Romalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is into the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the cliffs of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. Because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines, worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, 
You will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep dread. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessings now as we consider his word together. Let's pray. O God, our God, we come to you and we need ears to hear. Let it not be said of us that we heard but did not understand, that we saw but did not perceive. Let it not be said of us. Let us be those who have ears to hear by the power of your Spirit. Forgive the one who sins, uh, for the, forgive the one who preaches his sins, for they are many. And give us all ears to hear your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Emmanuel was bad news for Ahaz, but he can be good news for you. Because God will keep his promises. But that is only good news for those who believe. King Ahaz did not believe. So God spoke gloom and doom to him. But for us who believe, for God's people nearly 3,000 years ago who believed, Emmanuel is a light shining in the darkness. In chapter 9, Isaiah will prophesy the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's reason to believe chapter 9 is also talking about Emmanuel. In fact, Isaiah 7 through 12 is sometimes called the book of Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Mentioned by name in chapters 7 and 8. Mentioned chapter 9, chapter 11, though by a different name. But Ahaz did not believe, so he will not reap the benefits of Emmanuel. This story takes place in 735 B.C., just five years after Isaiah 6, when King Uzziah died. But now Uzziah's grandson is reigning. Ooh, and he's in trouble. However, God is calling King Ahaz, Uzziah's grandson. He's calling him to trust God's promises. Will he do it or not? And what can we learn from Ahaz's big decision? Four points this morning. The first one is this, the call to believe. The call to believe, you see it in verses 1 through 9. This call comes during a time of geopolitical intrigue, even civil war. Verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Lots of names. Let's clarify. Ahaz is Uzziah's grandson, the king of Judah. That's the occasionally faithful southern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah will speak to him soon, but Ahaz's situation room has alerted him to two threats. One of them is Rezin, king of Syria. His capital city is Damascus. That'll get mentioned later. The other is Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, which in this instance is used to refer to the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim, their largest tribe. So Syria, Judah's enemy, and Ephraim, Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah's estranged brother, the blackest sheep in the family of Israel, they are wanting to invade Judah, the southern kingdom. And in verses 5 and 6, they want to attempt to coup against Ahaz, king of the southern kingdom, so that they can install a puppet king in his place. His name is, oh, we don't know his name. They call him the son of Tabeel. He's a puppet so puny that he goes by daddy's name. 
History books and other scriptures tell us the reason that they wanted to do this, to invade Judah, was because Judah didn't want to make an alliance with them. They, they didn't want to be on the same team, so they ganged up against him, essentially. They didn't want to, Judah did not want to go into an alliance against the biggest bad guy in the region. They, uh, if you're getting confused yet, that's okay. Recap once again, Syria and Ephraim, or Israel, the northern kingdom. They wanted Judah, the southern kingdom, to join with them to fight off Assyria. If you weren't confused yet, we've got Syria and Assyria. Oh yeah, here we go. If you need to keep them straight, think Assyria, think A for awesome. They were the biggest and best army around. So when Judah and Ahaz, they reject this alliance, Syria and Ephraim say, okay, we're just going to invade you and overthrow you. Now ask, would you have been scared if you were Ahaz, the guy about to get invaded? Verse 2, when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Again, Ahaz was scared. Would you have been? What if you remembered that as Ahaz, king of Judah, you were part of the house of David, as verse 2 says, the house or the dynasty of David, which God had promised or covenanted to uphold in 2 Samuel 7. You see, the question for Ahaz is not which military alliance to choose. The question for Ahaz is the same question we all face. Will God keep his word or not? Will God defend his honor and his reputation by keeping his promises to his people? Will God let Satan and his minions defeat us when we belong to King Jesus? Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jesub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. The washer's field was like the local laundromat. It was also a weak point, the water supply. It was the weak point in Israel's defense. Elsewhere we learn that. Ahaz is examining his weaknesses to see if he can withstand a siege or an invasion. Ahaz is staring straight at his weakness, and God's word meets Ahaz in his weakness. Why do I say, where is God's word in verse 3? Oh, it's, it's in the person of Isaiah's son, Shear Jesub. Funny name, right? In Hebrew, it means a remnant will return. Isaiah's son is a message to Ahaz to trust God's word. As someone says, let Judah's enemies do their worst. They will never be able to annihilate Judah. A remnant shall return. And then Isaiah speaks to Ahaz, verse 4, and say to him, God speaking to Isaiah to speak to the king, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands that the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Be careful, he says. Don't act rashly. Don't seek other sources of salvation. Be quiet. Keep calm. Do not fear. That's one of the Bible's most frequently, uh, frequently repeated commands. Do not let your heart be faint. He's believe, don't doubt. You sit on the throne of David. God has made promises and you should trust them. Don't let these 
to burned out firecrackers scare you. Even if they're trying to invade, trying to install a puppet king in your place, according to verses 5 and 6. And then he says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah names off the kings, their countries, their capital cities. And he says one of them is going to be shattered in 65 years. Indeed, both of them, northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim and Syria, would be shattered by then 65 years later. And it would start the dismantling very soon. The way verse 9 ends is meant to imply that this is a parallel thing for Ahaz. These enemies will be shattered in 65 years. What about you? If he is not firm in faith, he will not be firm at all. If he doesn't believe in God's deliverance, the same destruction will come upon him. One author says it this way, If you do not remain firm, you will not be made firm. Both instances of that word firm, by the way, are the Hebrew verb, amen, to believe. And no one is saying that believing God's promises is always easy. It wasn't easy for Ahaz. He had some serious problems, serious threats to deal with. But God's word, it came to him in the flesh, she'er jasub, and in an audible voice, and the very crown upon Ahaz's head was a reminder that God had made promises to him as a son of David. You and I aren't kings, as far as I know. We don't always have a clear promise like this about a particular situation. But don't we often find ourselves in a similar situation to Ahaz? The struggle is not knowing what God's word says. It's trusting God's word in what it says. Will he provide in this situation, in this relationship, in this conflict? Will he still be good tomorrow? All the talk about King Ahaz reminded me of Captain Ahab from the novel Moby Dick. There's a famous quote from another character in that novel. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Now that is not a call for Presbyterians to repent of Presbyterianism. It's just a call for Presbyterians to repent daily. To turn from sin and turn to our Savior. To turn from doubt. To turn and trust God's word. Oh, that may sound like a simple lesson. But until we've mastered it and perfected it, it bears repeating. The call to trust, that's what we see first. Secondly, we see the cowardice. The cowardice that looks like belief. The cowardice that looks like belief. Verses 10 through 14. Another speech from Isaiah, God's mouthpiece to Ahaz the king. He requests a response this time. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol. Or high as heaven. What do you do when God offers you a sign? It's one thing for you to demand one. 
on top of all the other reasons that God gives us to trust Him. But this is not that. God is offering a sign. What do you do when God offers us a sign, say a a tangible sign of His death in resurrection? What do you do? Are you more holy and pious because you reject the sign and say, I don't need what God is offering? Years ago in British circles, uh, Scottish circles especially, it was sometimes seen as more pious to refuse the Lord's Supper because you were so introspective about your sin that you deemed yourself to be unworthy. Now that is backwards and twisted, but you can sort of understand how it happens, maybe. Supposedly, Pastor John Duncan once served communion to one old lady. She hemmed and hawed about whether she should partake of the Lord's Supper until finally Pastor Duncan told her, Take it, woman. It's for sinners. Take it, woman. It's for sinners. As you read verses 10 through 14, you almost wonder if Isaiah said something similar to Ahaz. Take it, man. It's for sinners. Kings and commoners alike. Because Ahaz refuses the sign in verse 12. In the words of Alec Moitier, that is because Ahaz does not want to believe. Ahaz's words, they sound resolute and firm. It sounds like faith in a way. It's actually cowardice. He doesn't want to believe. He doesn't want to trust God's word. In verses 13 to 25, what follows? It it shows exasperation. Judgment at Ahaz's unbelief, which masquerades as belief. Matt, aren't you being too harsh? Poor King Ahaz. No, because 2 Kings reveals Ahaz's motives, which were probably known to some of Isaiah's original readers, surely known by the Holy Spirit. Exhibit A about Ahaz's motives is found in 2 Kings 16, verses 7 and 8. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. You see, whether that request happened before Isaiah's speech or after doesn't make much difference. Ahaz is trusting Assyria, the biggest, baddest bully on the block, more than he trusts God. Syria and Israel, they want to invade Judah, Ahaz. And so God says, trust me, I'll deliver you. Ask a sign, I'll prove it. And Ahaz says, no, I think I'll go make peace with uh, Syria, the big bad bullies. Why trust God when you can just bribe the enemy? Why trust God when you can trust in another more tangible source of salvation. Psalm 62 says to trust God at all times, not to trust in extortion or riches. He was using his riches to buy temporary salvation. Psalms 20 and 146 say, don't trust princes and chariots, military strength, human leaders, not ultimately. We trust God and his word above all, especially when he's spoken a clear word to us. Ahaz pretended to trust God so much that he didn't need a sign. But he was really a coward who trusted something else more than God. 
So Isaiah says this wearies God in verse 13. God is long-suffering, but continued sin can exhaust God's patience. And you know, sometimes our sin is as simple as this. We don't trust God's word. I said that earlier, but now I want to mention a story. However, first a question. Do you trust that God's word alone can still convert sinners? That it can still open blind eyes and draw people to himself? That it can still help people see the beauty of Christ and all his benefits to us? Earlier this week, I saw a post on Twitter. It said simply, the word still works. <laughs> Next, it was linked to another post about an open position on the executive committee of the Atheists in Kenya Society. Why was it open? Why was this proof of God's word still working? Because Mr. Seth Mahiga resigned from his position. Why? From the official press release from the Atheists in Kenya Society. Seth's reason for resigning is that he has found Jesus Christ and is no longer interested in promoting atheism in Kenya. Now, to their credit, the Atheist Society also said, we wish Seth all the best in his newfound relationship with Jesus Christ. We should wish him all the best as well. We should pray that Seth Mahiga might be like a Levi or a Matthew, two names, same person, the tax collector who found Jesus and then threw a party and invited all the other tax collectors to meet Jesus. Do you believe the word still works? Or have you given up hope? Are you hiding your unbelief and doubts and pious sounding language like Ahaz did? In Ahaz, we see the cowardice that looks like belief. And we also see, thirdly, the consequences of unbelief. The consequences of unbelief in verses 13 to 25. Now, I started out saying Emmanuel was bad news for Ahaz, but he can be good news for you. To see this, don't miss the forest for the trees. You need to see the big picture. Ahaz doesn't believe. He, God offers him a sign. He refuses. He didn't want to believe. So God is weary with him, according to verse 13. And before we examine verses 14 to 17, all that Emmanuel, the, the Christmas stuff, the good stuff, we should notice how the chapter ends. End of verse 17. It says, bad news is coming to Judah. Such days as have not come since. And the bringer of the bad news, it'll be the king of Assyria. Do you see what's going on here? This is the one whom Ahaz bribed in 2 Kings 16. This is his supposed source of salvation. He will be his undoing. Assyria was supposed to save Judah, and, and she did temporarily. But later, Assyria destroyed Judah. The history books, other Bible passages back this up. And then you get into verse 18. It starts a series of in that day passages. None of them are good news. Verse 18, in that day, God will whistle and call for flies and bees from Assyria who will swarm the land. Verse 20, in that day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor, also known as Assyria. See, Ahaz thought he was hiring some help in the form of Assyria. It was actually God who was hiring Assyria to do his work so that God could use Assyria to execute judgment on faithless Judah. Verse 21, in that day, everyone will eat curds and honey. This is not the same 
as saying the promised land flowing with milk and honey. No, that phrase is meant to imply that the land was just overflowing with good stuff. This is saying curds and honey will be the only thing left. Curds, cottage cheese, is that living in the lap of luxury? Curds, cottage cheese, and honey, is that better or worse than only eating ramen noodles all the time because you can't afford anything else? I'm not sure, but neither one is good. Raise your hand if you secretly like ramen noodles. I know you're out there. Verse 23, it's okay. Verse 23, in that day, instead of riches, there will be briars and thorns. Briars and thorns mentioned several times. Which part of that sounds like good news for Ahaz? Ahaz's land will be devastated. And Ahaz's supposed salvation, the king of Assyria, will become his enemy, his undoing. As I said, Emmanuel is bad news for Ahaz. Emmanuel is not the sign Ahaz requested. He's the sign that God imposes upon an unbelieving king. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Only brief comments about this for now. We'll come back to it. But the virgin shall conceive. One particular virgin, which makes me doubt whether this also pointed to a child that was born during Ahaz's day. Something amazing would happen to ultimately keep the Davidic, Davi, yeah, can't say that word today, Davidic dynasty and God's promises alive. Verse 15 says that he will eat curds and honey, curds and honey coming up once again. He will be born into a poor and devastated land. He will not save Ahaz's bacon before Assyria comes and destroys them. And then verse 16 says, he will not come upon the scene until the land is devastated. And then next comes verses 17 to 25, all that bad news that we talked about. Backing up to verse 15, it says that he, Emmanuel, he will refuse evil and choose good. Godly character, godly resolve. Emmanuel will be good news, just not for Ahaz. There will be consequences for unbelief. I've worked in churches for 16 years. I've seen people who realized their sin, repented of their sin, and still had to face the consequences. That's not exactly Ahaz's situation. Let's be careful. He suffers consequences. No indication he ever repents. But one of the hardest things to see is someone suffering for a sin he is truly sorry of. God's forgiveness, it removes our guilt and our shame. It opens the gates of heaven to us. But His forgiveness does not always erase the consequences of sin. And sometimes it is those very consequences that drives us to the cross. Either in a deeper way that builds perseverance or in a way that brings us to the end of ourselves and helps us to see Jesus for the first time. There are consequences for unbelief. Our prayer is that God makes something good out of those consequences. That our end is not the same as Ahaz's end. And we see some of that in our final point today. Fourthly, the colossal good news out of Ahaz's bad unbelief. The colossal good news out of Ahaz's bad unbelief. 
If you're waiting for all that Christmas joy and wonder, we're just about there. But again, Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin will conceive. In Matthew chapter 1, tells us that virgin is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was a virgin. She was. That her conception, it was miraculous. It was even unbelievable at first to her betrothed. Something uh, akin to her fiancé, Joseph. There are theories about another virgin who conceived in Isaiah's day, but I'm not buying it, and I'd recommend Ralph Davis's Stump Kingdom. That's the name of the book, if you want to know the details. Also, if this prophecy was also fulfilled in Isaiah's day, why doesn't Isaiah tell us that more clearly? Isaiah does tell us more about Emmanuel in chapter 8, chapter 9, and 11. And he seems to be more than an ordinary boy. So again, this, this wasn't so much good news for Ahaz as it was good news for the house of David. Back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised that the dynasty of David, it would continue, it would not be cut off. But he also said that in verse 14, that he would discipline unfaithful descendants of David, you know, like Ahaz. So the Emmanuel prophecy, it's God's way of saying the dynasty of David is going to continue anyway, despite Ahaz's unbelief. Ahaz will be judged, but the remnant who remains and believes, they shall return. They will be blessed one day. They will be blessed if they trust God's word, even when that seems hard to believe. Was it hard to believe that God could save Judah with so many enemies bearing down on her? Of course, but he did. In Isaiah 7.1, did you catch this? It mentions these enemies could not yet mount an attack against Judah. In fact, they wouldn't. They wouldn't conquer Israel. God's word would hold true. It was hard to believe that God could also bring salvation through, through a baby? Born of a virgin? Wait, born of a virgin? How does that work? Hard to believe. But is anything too wonderful for God? Hasn't God been granting miracle babies ever since the days of Abraham and Sarah? And yes, without giving you pages of scholarly commentary, I believe Isaiah really meant virgin, not just an unmarried young woman. Again, I'll refer you to Ralph Davis if you want the gritty details. When something, when would something like this happen? Was it supposed to happen a couple days later? This virgin-born child who would exhibit godly character. Well, again, if it happened in Isaiah's day, he doesn't tell us. Which must have made the anticipation that much greater. The waiting is the hardest part. Especially when the consequences of Ahaz's unbelief rain down upon Judah. When they joined the northern kingdom in exile a few years later. When God's word went silent for some 400 years after the end of the Old Testament. Until Matthew chapter 1 verse 20. When an angel of the Lord appeared and spoke to Joseph son of David. Who was engaged to a virgin named Mary. And just in case we don't pick up on the subtle clues and allusions. Matthew 1, 22 and 23 spells it out for us. All this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew helpfully says to us, which means God with us. 
Joseph, Joseph would have likely been persecuted for doing the right thing in marrying Mary. For marrying a woman back then who was pregnant. Uh, uh, marrying a woman who would not have looked like a virgin. But Joseph, the lowly carpenter, turned out to be a better son of David than King Ahaz. Joseph believed God's word. Joseph obeyed. Joseph believed that his future son, not his biological son, but his legal son, that his future son would save his people from their sins. Joseph believed that God could make something good out of so much bad that had preceded it. Judah's unbelief, Ahaz's unbelief, Israel's exile, punishment, God's silence, Israel's occupation by the Roman Empire in the first century. And of all that darkness, Joseph saw a great light because he believed God's promise. Do you believe that God can work good news out of all the unbelief around you, all the unbelief in your heart? As a man once said to Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. See, Emmanuel has come. The remnant has returned. The remnant has remained faithful and the remnant is still growing by God's grace, even as thousands reject his word. Emmanuel was bad news for Ahaz, but he can be good news for you right now. For those who believe, God can be with us right now. God can work good right now out of whatever bad news surrounds you. Bad news may be coming. Bad news may be already here. But God is with us. And He will stay with us until the storm is past. Let us pray. God, you are good, and what you do is good, and your mercy to us, it never fails. Father, be with us. Help us to believe your good and precious promises. Help our hearts to take hold of them. Help those promises to take root in our heart, to sink down deep. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.